The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all? To feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, we begin with a pair of quotes. The first is from Italian author Carlo Levi, author of Christ Stopped at Eboli, among many other works. Quote, in individual mirrors, Rome rediscovers all the forms and all the aspects of the soul. End quote. The next one comes from Flaubert, one of our pantheonic heroes here at the History of Literature. Quote, The melancholy of the antique world seems to me more profound than that of the moderns, all of whom more or less imply that beyond the dark void lies immortality. But for the ancients, that black hole is infinity itself. Their dreams loom and vanish against a background of immutable ebony. No crying out, no convulsions, nothing but the fixity of a pensive gaze. Just when the gods had ceased to be and the Christ had not yet come, there was a unique moment in history between Cicero and Marcus Aurelius when man stood alone. Nowhere else do I find that particular grandeur. End quote. The quotations were selected for us by our guest today, who has written a book celebrating that era between Cicero and Marcus Aurelius, as well as, as the eras a good deal before and a good deal after that period, too. It's the melancholy mixed with grandeur, the crackling power of a modern city, and the splendid nostalgia, the melancholy of an empire's ruins. It's one of my favorite cities, and our guest today has written a new guide to it. A guide that doesn't just march us through where and how much, but what does it all mean? It's Rome as a guide to the good life, a philosophical tour, with our guest, Scott Samuelson, today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, jeez. This is my fifth episode today. Oh, cut me some slack, my tongue. Okay, let's start that over. Here we go. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson, and by now you know my weaknesses. Shakespeare is one. Tibet is another. Coconut cream pie is a third. Maybe that's a new one to you. I probably haven't mentioned that before. Oh, and the Beatles, of course. But let me get to the point here. Italy is one, two. Italy, Italy, my home away from home, and the city at the heart of it all, Rome. 
is a weakness. You may be dreaming of going there one day. If so, this episode is for you. If you've been there already, maybe even lots of times, then you'll know why this episode is also for you. Because Rome is not just a place, but an experience. A location that brings so much culture and history to the table, it can be overwhelming. Most good guidebooks will tell you what to see. Here's the site. Here's a map how to get there. And the lines will be shortest in the morning. We recommend getting tickets in advance, etc. Here's a few phrases to speak while you're there. Those are valuable, those guidebooks. But when you're there, you're going to want more. You're not just checking off boxes. Saw this, saw this, saw this, ate here, slept here, saw this. Hopefully that's not how you travel because all of the best plans fall apart when you see the Colosseum at night or the Pantheon or the Forum or St. Peter's, the Sistine Chapel. My God, it is right there with the Spanish Steps and the Trevi Fountain and a, a hundred other places and churches and piazzas and fountains. It's all there. My favorite neighborhood in the world, Trastevere, is there. And my favorite place to have a coffee, the Piazza Navona, especially after a heavy rain when the tourists have thinned and you have that gorgeous early in the morning. Oh, it's so good. Or late at night, too. You have that gorgeous place and those fountains to yourself. Your plans fall apart. Throw out the conventional guidebook. Yes, you can check this off. You found it. Good job. You want the guidebook later when you need to find out where to change money or that kind of thing. But wait, 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 wait. You're here now. You're in the Piazza Navona. You're not ready to move on yet. You're feeling something, some ghosts, some thoughts. Something higher than usual, something deeper. There's a stirring in you, and I'm not sure exactly what to think about it. I need more time to absorb. That's the sensation you'll have. What is this? What am I feeling? What's the, is this history? Is it art? Is it all of it? Well, Scott Samuelson's book is for you. Here's what to see, but also here's what to reflect upon here, here's a guide to those ghosts that are roaming through this place. The people who have been here and written about the people who made these statues, the reasons for it all. Here's what to absorb. It's not room for dummies. It's not room for, for the, the quick one day tourist. It's the opposite of that. It's a philosophical tour. But that will come second today. First, we're going to turn to our friend Emily Dickinson. As promised, we have arrived at one of her greatest hits. Last time we were on poem 122. And now it's a quick hop to 124 with its very famous first line. Safe in their alabaster chambers. Speaking of Rome, how good is that? This one has two stanzas, five lines in the first one, and then eight more. Actually, this poem has several different versions. I'm choosing to read the one printed first in the Helen Vendler collection with one modification that was recommended by Vendler. She didn't incorporate it herself, but she recommended using this 
word substitution, which I will explain after I read the poem. Here we go. Oh, before I begin, alabaster, in case you're unfamiliar, that's the white stone that you see in tombs. These are like coffins or tombs or gravestones. That's the, that's the general idea here. Okay. Safe in their alabaster chambers, untouched by morning and untouched by noon, lie the meek members of the resurrection, rafter of satin and roof of stone. Grand go the years in the crescent above them, worlds scoop their arcs, and firmaments row, diadems drop, and doges surrender, soundless as dots on a disk of snow. Hmm. A stunning poem. What's going on here with Dickinson? As usual, it's a lot. We're pulling from Christian theology here, specifically the resurrection with its its promise. This is the rapture. It's promised that the dead shall ascend. The second coming. Dickinson did not believe this was going to happen. But I think the commentary here doesn't need to depend on her beliefs on one or the other on whether it's true or not, or whether it will happen or not. Her observation is that it hasn't happened yet. There may have been people who believed, believed passionately that it was going to happen to them. That was their view when they were living of what would happen to them after death, that Jesus would arrive, the second coming, and the righteous dead would be resurrected. He would lead them into the heaven. And Dickinson was commenting on those beliefs of those people and saying, here they are. Here are their alabaster tombs. They're inside there in coffins. Here are the bodies buried in them. They still await. It's not so much a judgment as pointing something out. If you believe this to be true, this must be your view of every tomb or graveyard or cemetery that they contain the bodies of Christian dead who are waiting indefinitely, still waiting. Let's look at how she portrays them as they're waiting. Safe. That's the very first word. That tells us a lot, doesn't it? Most people don't think of tombs as safe. Tombs are, are sort of the result of, of tragedy, of disaster, where you're, you're at your least safe. You've died. It's kind of a failure or a loss. It's the place you try to avoid. You, don't, you, don't, you wouldn't cocoon there in one of those if you had a choice, if you were alive, and yet it is safe in another way. It's a place to be left alone. Nothing will disturb you there. You're inside a coffin, and inside a tomb, that's my view of rafter of satin and roof of stone. A bed, you might prefer a bed if you're living, but it's not that safe. Someone can always shake you awake or interfere with you, attack you. A house has locks that can be broken into. But here, locked away in stone, Maybe if we imagine something else down there in the ground, that's safe. Safe in their alabaster chambers, untouched by morning and untouched by noon. You're safe, but you're also away from the world. The day breaks, but you don't see it. The earth heats up to a noon temperature. 
but that doesn't really affect you either. You're away from all that now, just as you're away from the workings of history. The years going grandly by on the planet above you, the stars and planets row across the skies, slowly wheeling by. Whole worlds have orbits that are scooped for themselves away from those here in these tombs, even here on Earth, or I guess on other planets too. Even the most powerful will fall and decay. Diadems will drop. These are queens with their crowns. Why do the diadems drop? Well, of course, the queens. They lose power, don't they? All of them, or succumb to death. Doges, the leaders in Venice, have the same fates befall them. They surrender. What does all this mean? The surrenders, ultimately so noisy and clamorous in real life as we know them, are from another perspective, just quiet drops falling on a disk of snow. Have you seen raindrops landing on snow? They barely make a muffled sound. Soundless, you could almost say, and they're nearly invisible, too. They don't land and and stay there frozen like a bubble, like a shiny bauble, shiny tiny bauble on a blade of grass. Shiny and wet, no. When a raindrop falls on a disk of snow, it's nearly invisible. It's an absence. Melts away, a slight hole. No color against the white background. Taken from a cosmic perspective. That's how I read the disk of snow. What is the disk of snow? Well, imagine you're in space, looking down at a frozen earth. The earth looks to you like a disk, right? As the moon does to us. It's frozen over as a white disk. Now imagine you take that disk and you can turn it and set it down before you or it hovers in midair or it rests on the ground. Imagine if you could pluck the moon out of the sky and it's about it's maybe as big as your hand, a little bigger. It's flat because that's how it looks to you from this distance. It's that size because it's how it looks to you. And you set it down, you set it floating on a pond. It's just a bright disk at that point, right? You're shifting perspective. But this is a poem. You can do that. We're using our imagination and our vision. So you have this floating white disk. It's the earth as seen from space, plucked out and set down. And then you see raindrops fall on it, those silent drops. Well, those are queens and kings and very important people landing creating near nothingness. That's ultimately what happens to all of us after we die, kings and doges alike. Only the Christian dead in their alabaster chambers, their graves, have a vision of themselves, have a, have a different fate in store for themselves. In their beliefs, they lie waiting. They lie Waiting. The different word I substituted is the word lie. Some versions have sleep in that phrase, in that line. They don't say lie the meek members of the resurrection as I did. They say sleep the meek measures, the meek members of the resurrection. And Vendler tells us that Dickinson had both in different versions of her poem that she wrote out. Vendler prefers lie to fit in with the common gravestone epitaph, here lies so-and-so. And she says, well, 
Because Dickinson didn't really believe in the resurrection, sleep might be a shade too close to accepting the truth of it. She didn't believe in the, I guess I, maybe I should say the rapture, the second coming. Because she didn't believe in that, sleep might be too much to say, well, it's not death, it's just sleep. But to say lie kind of keeps it ambiguous. They're lying there. Objectively speaking, that's the truth. But who's there? Who's there? Alabaster chambers are kind of fancy. These might be rich people. These aren't paupers buried in humble graves in shallow ditches and, and marked with a, a stone or a cross. These are, these are people who could afford to have an alabaster tomb. Grand, probably the biggest leaders of the congregation, the ones who attended every service in their finest clothes and who filled the offering plates with their wealth. Hmm. On the other hand, that's maybe the people who are most certain they're going to heaven, but that's not the people that Christ reached out to the most, right? Those weren't, that's not who he had in mind, Right? Eye of the needle, camel, all of that. Then again, Dickinson says, they're the meek members of the resurrection. What do we what do we think of that phrase? You might say, well, oh, these are the meek. The meek are the inheritors of the earth. These are the people who are who are Christ's chosen people after all. No need to confuse them with the wealthy people who are going to have a hard time going to heaven. These are the these are the meek. They are headed to heaven. But, as always, Dickinson prefers to walk along the edge of the knife rather than put her feet down on either side of it. Interpreted one day, one one way, you say these are the people who will be headed to heaven, the meek, and now they're safe and waiting, untouched and undisturbed, on their way someday. But in the alternative and simultaneous interpretation, the one we can hold in equipoise with the other in our minds, because that's what we do when we read great poetry by great poets. We think two things at once, and they can be contradictory, but still live together. That's okay. In that interpretation, these are people who are convinced that they would be resurrected, but there they are, as fallen as anyone, meek members of a movement. They're doing nothing. They're members of a movement that has not happened and maybe never will. All this history churning past them, all the revolvings of the universe going on overhead, but there they are, convinced, but not proven correct, or not yet anyway, waiting, sleeping, lying, safe, soldiers at ease, pilgrims frozen in place and time, thus far as pointless as we all are and will be. An army that has not yet mobilized or been called to. Ghosts at rest. Ghosts at the ready and at rest. Maybe forever. It's a chilling poem. A fascinating glimpse into Emily Dickinson's mind. The mind of an unbeliever fascinated by the believers fascinated by this, by all this, and obsessed with death and how that makes a mockery of everything. 
how that deepens all of our beliefs in life. That's poem 124. There are some excellent alabaster chambers in Rome. You'll see them in churches. And if you're in that cast of mind, you might want to take a visit to the Protestant Cemetery, where Keats and Shelley lie, or sleep, if you like. And others, too, of course. We'll hear from Scott Samuelson about what it's like to visit Rome with this kind of heady thought in mind after this. Hello, everyone. This is Jack here to tell you about a way to eat better and easier. That's right, Factor and their delicious, ready-to-eat meals. These things are amazing. Chef-crafted, always fresh, never frozen. All you do is heat them up and you're ready to go. No prepping, cooking, or cleanup. And you get something healthy, nutritious, and tasty. I love Factor meals, especially on those days when I'm in the office. They're better for me than snacks or junk food, and much cheaper and faster than buying my lunch at a restaurant. You can choose options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, and you can change your schedule to get as much or as little as you need every week, whatever suits you and your family best. Head to factormeals.com literature50 and use code literature50 to get 50% off. That's code literature50 at factormeals.com literature50 to get 50% off. Hey, grown-ups! the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Scott Samuelson, professor of philosophy, who's transitioning from Kirkwood Community College to Iowa State University. Scott is the author of The Deepest Human Life and Seven Ways of Looking at Pointless Suffering. Why stop at seven, he asked rhetorically. Some of us might need more. (laughs) Might need more ways than that. And he's here today to discuss his new book, Rome as a Guide to the Good Life. A Philosophical Grand Tour, a publication of the University of Chicago Press. Scott Samuelson, welcome to the History of Literature. 
Oh, I'm so glad to be on. Thanks. So what I like about your book is that it goes deeper than a lot of guidebooks and tour books do. I, I love to go to Rome. I, I go there for the people and the architecture and the food and the wine and the art. And I do, like everyone else, and the history. And I visit all the churches, even though it's not my religion. I'm still attracted to that. But I, I also feel this kind of stirring when I'm there, that I that there's more, that I want to engage with all of that, but on a more intellectual level and there's something deeper that's that's pulling at me and it sounds like that was the spirit animating this book yeah that's exactly right when i first went to rome though i'd studied a lot about it i i really really wasn't prepared for how much the city was going to speak to me personally Mm. i felt oftentimes like the the sights and the stones were talking right to me trying to tell me what they knew and so, yeah, that was a big part of the inspiration for the book was to try to figure out, well, what what are they calling out to me? Uh, what are they saying? So, yeah, I, I think you've eloquently articulated exactly the, the origin of the book in, in a way. Right. So what came first for you, an interest in Rome or an interest in philosophy? Yeah, that's a good question. And weirdly, though, I not until you've just asked it that I, uh, I sort of occurred to me, they happened about at the exact same time. Mm though they were sort of in different categories in my brain, or at least related, but different categories in my brain. They, I was about 16 years old, and they both, I have to credit both to uh, the Iowa City Public Library, all praise to public libraries. Mm. They seem like little branches of heaven to me. But my interest in philosophy happened in the public library when I chanced on some book, some compendium of philosophy, and, and I was just kind of browsing through it. I didn't really know what philosophy was. I had a very vague sense of what it might be, and I, I was kind of flipping through it, and I saw one of the chapters was called Five Proofs of God. Mm. And I thought, I, I didn't even know there was one proof of God, let alone <laughs> five. And, and I, I read Thomas Aquinas's famous Five Ways to God. And I had a kind of curious experience where I, I can't say that I really understood what he was talking about, nor did I necessarily feel convinced by what the little bit I did understand. And yet I felt like whatever this guy was doing was what I wanted to be doing. Mm. I was like, this seems like, like about the best thing a human being can do. or whatever, whatever this is, I don't even know what it is, but it seems like this is the highest pitch of a human soul. And so I started just reading around in philosophy at that time. And my interest in Rome also happened in the public library. I chanced on a book that I finally tracked down thanks to the internet called The Fountains of Rome by H.V. Morton. And uh, I just was looking through this book that, uh, you know, and I was just amazed by these pictures of hundreds of fountains in this city. And I just thought, what kind of city would have all of these incredible fountains mm, in it? Yeah. And I was also just fascinated by the... Uh, description of fountains and the uh, it struck me as as also a kind of i don't know a way of thinking about art and poetry and literature philosophy uh, as the kind of taking something that's so meaningful and making it play making it come alive uh, making it fit for human use so anyway i i got interested in rome and so in both cases i i was able to follow up on those interests when i went to college i studied philosophy i also studied latin so my interest runs deep in both of these areas. Yeah. And yet people might expect that you headed to Rome after your first college summer or something. And instead, it sounds like you weren't there until a bit later in life. Where were you in life when you went and what took you there? 
Well, I'd been teaching for a while at Kirkwood Community College, raising a family, sort of just hunkering down doing that. And my colleague at Kirkwood, Renee Schluter, had been leading a a short-term study abroad to Rome, and she needed someone to be a co-leader with her. And she asked me if I had any interest, and I, I was overjoyed at the possibility, having always wanted to go to Rome, and just somehow it never quite had worked out. So yeah, I was, I was in my mid to late, I think I was about 36 years old when I first went, 36, 37, something like that. And yeah, so I went as a, a co-leader of a study abroad trip. And even though I studied Latin and the history of Rome and philosophy and I had a strong interest in art history, I'd been doing that for decades. I felt like my first two weeks in the city, I learned more than I had in those previous two decades. Mm. What were you prepared to see and what did you actually find when you got there? Yeah, that's a good question. And it's, you know, I, I don't know that people are ever fully prepared to see whatever they are going to see. I mean, there's something, I mean, this is, a, this is an argument for study abroad itself. I mean, you can spend a lot of time in a classroom showing great slides. You could be looking at books and pictures and reading. And yet somehow when you're in the Sistine Chapel, it's a very different experience or yeah. when you're in St. Peter's or, or let alone when you're stumbling on places that you never thought to even study in great detail. For me, some of the best things that I found in Rome were, were precisely those kinds of sites. Yeah. I just don't think that there's any way to fully prepare for what the experience offers I know sometimes travelers have the experience of being disappointed in something, you know, saying like, well, this is smaller than I imagined, though oftentimes you feel blown away by it. But whatever you find there, it seems to me it's a different experience than actually just merely studying it, as great as all that is and as important as it is. Right. But then it's like a it's a virtuous circle at that point, because the more I go, the more I want to learn as well. So it, it's sort of, you you know, you come home with a reading list and, a, oh, I need to check this out. Or, you know, maybe today you just start looking things up like crazy. Or we have a book like yours, which kind of helps to point things out and, and so on. And we'll get to that in a few minutes. But I was interested when you described that the book was combining religious pilgrimage with the grand tour, with contemporary tourism. And I thought maybe we could kind of talk about the the three different approaches that people sometimes have taken to Rome and and what exactly you meant by that. Yeah. So I I think of sort of three big categories historically of travelers to Rome and, and travelers more generally perhaps the oldest version of the travelers, the religious pilgrim. And of course, still to this day, there are religious pilgrims to Rome uh, who go there seeking a, a deeper connection to their faith, having a special version of a holiday or getting to see the Pope or whatever it might be in Rome. Well, there are actually other religious pilgrimages that one can take to Rome too. The Jewish community has been there about as long as anyone. Mm. But to oversimplify a bit, I see kind of the essence of religious pilgrimage as seeking meaning, transcendence, Mm -hmm. and then starting around 1700 and going through about 1900, you had the Grand Tour, where primarily British, though not exclusively British, young men and sometimes young women went to Italy to kind of complete their education and to consolidate their social standing, I suppose. So again, to oversimplify a bit, I see the Grand Tour at least at its best as seeking art and knowledge, especially historical Mm -hmm. knowledge. 
And I think the Grand Tour lives on in its own way, particularly in study abroad programs where students from all over the world go to Rome in a way to kind of bring to fruition some of their studies. And then, of course, we have contemporary tourism, which is easy to disparage, though many of us are great beneficiaries of it. And I suppose the contemporary tourist is often seeking fun, novelty, to add another notch to their belt of where they've traveled. Mm Mm-hmm. And maybe uh, two days in Rome, and then a day in Florence, and then a day in Venice, yeah. and, and move on to the next country. Right. It can be quite <laughs> shallow, no doubt. <laughs> Though, you know, I, I suspect that all these forms of travel had elements of the others in them. I mean, I'm sure there were a lot of religious pilgrims who really just wanted some fun and novelty or to be mm-hmm. able to say they'd gone to Rome. And, and, and plenty of people on the Grand Tour we're less interested in art knowledge and more interested in getting drunk and chasing after uh, women or men. Right. I think that, you know, the human condition is such that all these things are kind of contained in us. I'm not opposed to any of these things, but I guess I wanted to be a, a slightly different kind of a traveler, but one that embraced what I saw as the best forms of these kinds of travel. I do think we can seek meaning and transcendence in Rome. I do think we can certainly seek art and historical knowledge in Rome and other places too. I'm just focused on Rome, obviously, for my book. But And I also think that there's a lot to be said for the fun and novelty uh, of contemporary tourism, and I'm grateful for the opportunities that supported me. But I, I thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting to try to combine these things and also kind of add maybe one other element to them, which is uh, to seek some self-knowledge. Mm in Mm -hmm. all of this. And I think travelers naturally are interested in this, though, in a sense, a lot of these different forms of travel don't actively solicit that desire in us or feed it in in any real way. I think that when we see this stuff, we start to ask ourselves questions about, well, how should I live my life? What can I learn from this? What does all this art about God tell me about God? Or what does uh, all this very strange and oftentimes violent history tell us about human nature and who I am and and how can I absorb all this and make it somehow meaningful for my own life. Right. And your book makes the point that we often view travel as an escape. And we say, you know, we got to set down your troubles and and pick up the suitcase. And But then what we find when we get there is that we have not escaped our troubles because our troubles are really with Mm -hmm. ourselves. And that's that's something you yeah. always take with you. And so we're sitting there and we might eat gelato and, and sit by the fountains, but it almost feels worse because if that was your motivation for traveling, because you think, well, here I am, but but I, I still feel kind of that same way that I did when I was home. I thought I was going to feel better, but in some ways this just makes me, it emphasizes that I'm not worthy of this. I want to be different. I want to be bigger. I want to, mm-hmm. I want to expand my soul to match this place. But I can tell that I'm not this grand and I'm not on this scale. I'm still the same pinched person that I was back home. So enter the philosophers who can help us in these places, kind of not just see this and that, like we're checking a box and saying, well, now I've seen the Sistine Chapel, check, and now I move on to the next site, but who help us to kind of think bigger and be bigger in a way. So, Yeah, that's well said. I think that, curiously, philosophy is a lot like what you've just described as well, that, mm, or the yeah. examined life, if we think right. of it in that regard that sometimes you come to philosophy and the possibilities of it, or for that matter, literature, 
And in one sense, you're, you're leaving the real world and going into this kind of peculiar, strange world of thought. And yet you find you can't leave behind what's going on in your life. And then it forces you to kind of confront things perhaps that you, you hadn't confronted or, uh, and then makes you think about new possibilities. And just as philosophy can be a kind of barren thing where you just play around with ideas and then just go back to your life as such and travel can also be like that. They both also offer this possibility of being transformative, of taking that new trip and bringing it back home. Hmm. So let's go through some places so people can get a sense of how your book sort of sets this up and, and what people might find if they're taking the book with them or if they're reading at home, getting ready for the trip. You start in the Protestant cemetery with Rosa Bathurst. Why mm-hmm. there and why her? Yeah, well, first of all, I'll just say the Protestant cemetery, or often called the non-Catholic cemetery, is just a beautiful mm. spot. Mm-hmm. And, and it's just a fascinating place to be. The, it's mostly people who have, who, as I put it in my book, died on their journey. I mean, the, yeah. these are people who weren't originally from Rome, from all over the world, but who came to Rome seeking things out and died and were buried there. Mm-hmm. And, and the site is just full of really fascinating epitaphs. Keats and Shelley, I want to make sure my uh, listeners know if they go, they get to see the name was written in water. Yeah, and Gregory Corso, the poet, mm-hmm. is buried there. Right, uh, right. Antonio Gramsci, the, the great Italian Marxist, is buried there. But in a way, and as great as those is to have a pilgrimage to those famous burials, there's just so many other people who seem like extraordinary people whose names aren't as famous as John Keats or, or Percy Shelley's. But I stumbled across Rosa Bathurst's epitaph, and I was just blown away. If you wouldn't mind, I might read it. Um, yes, please uh, do. Because I, I think it's just an astonishing epitaph. So, you know, I see this big tomb, and, and I try to, you know, make out what's said on it, and this is what it says. Beneath this stone are interred the remains of Rosa Bathurst, who was accidentally drowned in the Tiber on the 24th of March, 1824, whilst on a riding party, owing to the swollen state of the river and her spirited horse taking fright. She was the daughter of Benjamin Bathurst, whose disappearance when on a special mission to Vienna some years since was as tragical as unaccountable no positive account of his death ever having been received by his distracted wife. He was lost at 26 years of age. His daughter, who inherited her father's perfections, both personal and mental, had completed her 16th year when she perished by as disastrous a fate. Reader, whoever thou art, who may peruse this tale of sorrow, let this awful lesson of the instability of human happiness sink deep in thy mind. If thou art young and lovely, build not thereon. For she who sleeps in death under thy feet was the loveliest flower ever cropped in its bloom. She was everything that the fondest heart could desire or the eye covet, the joy and hope of her widowed mother, who erects this poor memorial of her irreparable loss. Early, bright, transient, chaste as morning dew, she sparkled, was exhaled, and went to heaven. Mm-hmm. So I just find that a really moving epitaph. Yes. I found out later it was one of the favorite epitaphs of Henry James. Mm. 
you can see why he might appreciate it as well. It's so suggestive and there's a, a kind of gentility in the language that is also profoundly tragic. And James, we've done uh, a few episodes on his relationship with Constance Fenimore Wilson, and her grave is there as well. That's correct. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are many remarkable women who are buried in the Protestant cemetery. But anyway, I got really interested in this epitaph. And, and I suppose part of my interest was just interested in the juicy historical gossip. You know, who is this Rosa? Who's this father who died on a, a you know some mission to Vienna? You know, who's this woman writing this epitaph? There was so much suggested and seductive about uh, the, the possibilities there. So I wanted to dig in and find out more about them. But I, I also was interested in the, so to speak, metaphysical question or mm-hmm. ethical question that, that the epitaph raises. The epitaph says, build not thereon. Yeah. Don't build on youth and beauty. Okay, well, the, but it, it raises the question, what should we build on? Virtue, God, love. And it also dawned on me that Rome is, the city of Rome itself is, all, so to speak, always building whereon it should not be building it's always building on somewhere else, on the ruins of something, on the falling apart of beauty and religion and politics. So, you know, I started to think that in a way we're always building on tragedy and that we never, in a sense, really are building unless we're embracing that tragedy. So I got interested in this idea of this epitaph as raising this profound question of how should we live our lives or what should we build on? And seeing that the answer is not going to be a simple one, that Rome is going to give a complex answer to that question. And I also liked how my interests sort of blended the history, who are these people, with the the philosophical questions that their lives uh, embody. Right. Okay. And before we leave the Protestant Cemetery, I wanted to mention you do go through some other things to see and, and different sites, but then you also say this, it's sort of like this is an opportunity to think about these issues and maybe wander around and soak it in and kind of just exist in this atmosphere, which I think is not necessarily how other guidebooks work. (laughs) You know, they usually, they sometimes make it seem like, well, if you don't see the eight things we've listed here, then you've sort of failed. But it can be a little bit like, you know, it reminds me of those checklists that students get when they go on field trips to museums and so on. And in order to make sure they they pay attention and don't clown around, the teachers will say, you know, Mm -hmm. okay, what color is the fish in this certain aquarium or, you know, whatever it is. But as I grew older, I came to appreciate museums just for their space and just the light that's there and the feeling that you get when you're inside and, and the learning that can happen just from walking through the corridors rather than, okay, here are nine exhibits I need to see to make sure that I've gotten my fill of learning for the day. Yeah, and I think I would put it both ways. I mean, on the one hand, the guidebook can sometimes be, or the worksheet for the the study abroad students can sometimes be too much of a checklist and forget the, the transformative parts of thinking that can go on. But on the flip side, I think philosophy can sometimes forget the importance of place as well. Philosophers can ask us to think about X, Y, and Z, but there is a way in which sometimes, as you've quite nicely put it, thinking happens in a place and sometimes happens more naturally in certain places. And I think, for instance, a a graveyard is a great example of this. Mm -hmm. I think many of us, you know, in a graveyard, first of all, are more contemplative, but are also 
you know, somehow put in touch with thinking about death in a way that is, is, is somehow more meaningful and natural than, than if we're just sitting in our living room trying to reflect on those same questions. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's take a quick break and then come back with some more of the areas in Rome. Okay, we're back. So Scott Samuelson, I'd like to ask you about a few of my favorite spots in Rome, and maybe you can tell us what you find there when you go and what questions that it uh, the area leads you to think about. So why don't we start with the Forum? Yeah, to me, the Forum raises the central kinds of questions of Roman political philosophy. Hmm. The Forum is the site that you know, obviously we were just seeing the ruins of it and occasionally some buildings that have lasted a little better than others. But if you're at least thinking about the history and you're just kind of walking down the main drag, the Sacra Via, you realize you're kind of walking through the whole development of a city, starting with uh, temples to old gods like Saturn or uh, the Temple of Vesta, uh, almost pre-civilized gods, so to speak. And and then, you know, going to deal with uh, monuments then to great Roman figures, uh, Julius Caesar, among others. And then, of course, it's also a commercial space. It was a place where people came together and it started to raise the central questions of political philosophy. How do different people come together and live together well? And so to me, the, the thinker that I went to to sort of think more deeply about the forum was Cicero, the great uh, Roman orator and also great Roman philosopher and politician, because he was, to me, he's a good example of some of the beauty of Roman philosophy. He's not as original as a Plato or an Aristotle, but in a way, he's a more practical mm. philosopher. He's he's thinking about, you know, the, the questions of political philosophy that people like Plato and Aristotle raised, but for him, these are, you know, very practical questions. He isn't just interested in, as Plato was, dreaming up a perfect city in heaven, but of actually, yeah. you know, being in that forum and dealing with real people. He, in fact, criticized one politician by saying, you know, he keeps he keeps thinking he's living in Plato's Republic when, in fact, he's living in Romulus's sewer. <laughs> and so, so I got interested in what, you know, how he uh, grappled with, with questions of political philosophy and how we can live together and live a good life in the plurality of the city. Mm, right. Okay. Let's move to the Piazza Navona. Maybe my favorite uh -huh. spot in all of Rome. Yeah, gorgeous spot. And for those who are traveling uh, and who are in the Piazza Navona, I'd really recommend going right off the Piazza Navona is the Palazzo Altemps, which is just an absolutely lovely museum yeah. uh, of 15th, 16th century Palazzo filled with ancient art. Almost no one goes there. So yeah. the Piazza Navona is usually quite full, but I know. just right off of it, you have, you have this incredible spot that is uh, uh, just some of the most beautiful things in Rome are there and, and hardly ever visited. But with the Piazza Navona, I mean, I also, to me, it's, 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 it's a cousin in a way to the forum. I mean, this is another public space and it's a much more living public space than the forum. The forum is an ancient ruined site, but the Piazza Navona is still this public space where people come out and strut their stuff and 
sell hawk their wares and show off in their cafes and and uh it just raises questions about you know how public space has changed over time but also it's hard not to be so seduced by the fountains and the mm. piazza mm-hmm. novona the fountain of the four rivers bernini's great fountain at the center is is wonderful but there's also the fountain of neptune and fontana del moro on the other side that just really uh, wonderful things you can think about you know how fountains have been used as well in public space can i ask you why do you love the piazza novona so much oh it's one of those i think maybe it's because it's a place i hadn't really heard about so maybe i've spoiled it for people by emphasizing it here but it's a place i hadn't really heard about before i went and you see a lot of pictures of the Colosseum, and and in some ways you go to the Colosseum, and it's is this going to live up to the many movies I've seen where it's been in the background? And I, I think it does, but you also already sort of have a, an image of it in your mind's eye. But what I was appreciating about the Piazza Navona was it wasn't just a place to go look at, but a place to be. It was a place where we would always sit in the cafes. And we would read or we would, you know, talk. And, and it was sort of a, a gathering place as well. But it, it just struck me as being so beautiful, the way the buildings surround mm. that mm-hmm. shape of the Navona. And then the, like you said, the fountains and the way that the the stories behind the construction of the fountains and the sculptures that are there. And I don't know, I think maybe it always also just felt like you know, I've always loved kind of secret gardens or feeling like you're away from the city, even though the Piazza Navona can be very crowded. But if you're there when it's raining or if you're there out of mm. season, it really yeah. has this feeling of you walk through these crowded little streets and you take twists and turns. And then all of a sudden, this great space opens up, but it feels kind of protected and self-contained as well. It doesn't feel like the city is kind of spilling into the piazza or overrunning it. It feels like you're in this little circle, almost as if you've you've entered a, a stadium or something and there's doors. You know, it feels almost like you're behind protected gates or doors or something because you yeah. do feel so set off by those buildings that surround the piazza. And so it's always felt to me a little bit like a, a Narnia experience, you know, going through the wardrobe and then uh-huh. coming out in this magical place. And uh, yeah. I just uh, have never failed to, every time I go to Rome, I spend a lot of time in the Piazza Navona and it's never disappointed me. Yeah, yeah, it's a wonderful spot. And it does evoke a feeling that I get oftentimes in Rome, though in different forms, which is the way I put it, is feeling as big in one's humanity as possible mm. while still feeling human. Yeah. And, and there is a way in which the space itself kind of caters to that in the Piazza Navona where it's it's a big space, but it's not, it, it doesn't crush you. It sort of expands you in, in its way. Um, mm. uh, and of course, with the Fountain of the Four Rivers, I mean, one of the things that's so amazing with Bernini's genius is he has these just massive marble river gods. I mean, just giant uh, figures. And yet they seem to be buoyed up, you know, like beach balls by the water of the fountain. Um, uh, so, you know, he makes the most heavy seem the most light somehow. Um, it's it's quite astonishing. Yeah. Okay, let's try to hit at least one more. Let's go to the Colosseum. What themes does the Colosseum bring to your mind? Yeah, I mean, to me, the Colosseum is, is a good example of why, uh, you know, of, of, of the possibilities of philosophical travel. 
I mean, people go to the Coliseum in part out of curiosity and almost everyone knows about it. Uh, It's maybe the most famous site in Rome, one of the most famous historical sites in the world. But of course, once you're actually there, first of all, you're struck by how similar it is to almost every other big stadium you've ever been into. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that almost everyone starts to ask philosophical questions, maybe doesn't pursue them very far, but I think almost everyone asks philosophical questions in the Colosseum. You wouldn't think of the Colosseum as a natural place for philosophy, but it's actually, I think, you know, pound for pound, one of the places that raises a lot of questions for people uh, uh, really efficiently and well. Questions like, why do we enjoy violence? Why do we enjoy gratuitous violence? What does that tell us about human nature and how we're to live with it? The fact that this is so similar to the kinds of stadiums where we still go to see uh, just, you know, spectacles of violence raises questions about who we are and what role does this play in, in the city, in the nation? And, and, uh, how does this fit into a culture? Do we need to be doing this, uh, given its longstanding place in human life, or is it something that we can transcend? I think many people end up feeling quite disturbed by the Coliseum. Uh, I know when I was first there, that was my overwhelming emotion, was just one of, of you know, just feeling haunted by the death of so many people and animals in this mm. one place. And the fact that, that they were cheered on, I thought it was very deeply disturbing. And to me, that it became interesting to then to start to realize, wait a second, philosophers like Seneca and Augustine were in a sense also disturbed by this very thing when the games were in full swing in ancient Rome. Mm-hmm. And they too raised these very same questions and their philosophies are in part built around answering those questions. Because something that's so beautiful, the, the architecture and the edifice itself, it's so majestic and so... It's just such a beautiful building, even in its current state. You can tell how how beautiful it was and how, in some ways, uplifting it was. And yet it's the center of this bloodthirsty practice. And mm-hmm. the people who are there, you know, on the one hand, they're walking into what we would consider now to be a, one of the treasures of the world from an artistic mm-hmm. standpoint— and yet they were there with this kind of bloodlust in their hearts right. as they were there to, exactly. to root on the carnage. Exactly. Mm. How about the Campo dei Fiori? Well, I love the Campo dei Fiori just because it's it's such a, I mean, it's such a bustling, active site, great cafes and restaurants all around, people selling goods, great clothing stores, all that kind of stuff going on. But of course, right in the center of it is this, towering statue of Giordano Bruno, who's kind of glowering over the face of all of this uh, uh, bustling modernity and glowering in the direction of the Vatican. And uh, the the statue is erected on the site where he was burned alive in 1600 after uh, being found guilty by the Roman Inquisition. It's a, a good example of how Rome can be such a jarring experience of, like I said, so much kind of fun and, you know, food and cool goods, and then also this sort of profoundly tragic death of a philosopher and the fact that he still kind of haunts that space. And, you know, it it leads me to think about lots of things. I mean, I suppose one thing is the relationship between religion and philosophy, Mm. but also it's hard not to start to think, you know, what am I willing to die for? And, you know, what is the slaughter of house of history that all these uh, storefronts are built on? Mm, right. And and the layering that Rome has. I mean, we would go there if it was just 
an ancient city sitting in the middle of nowhere, and we would go there if it was just yep. a modern city, and we would go there if it was just a Renaissance city, and it kind of combines all of We would go there if it just had the Vatican, and it's sort of like it combines all of these different uh, time periods and different movements and, and the layers of it, and the Campo de Fiori is sort of one of the most chaotic ones to untangle. Yeah, indeed. And, and the, but, but you're exactly right. I mean, this is one of the things that I find very attractive about Rome is that it is just such a layered site and, uh, uh, and, 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 and it often is, is building on its past and repurposing it in completely new ways. And so any given site, as you say, is, has, can have ancient elements or medieval elements, Renaissance elements, Baroque elements, you know, fascist elements. I mean, it's really quite astonishing in that way, but, it also that to me also has a kind of philosophical mm. point to it, which mm-hmm. is that it's a kind of eclecticism. And I think that some of the greatest Roman philosophers, including Bruno and Cicero, are incredibly eclectic thinkers, which puts them maybe a little outside of the mainstream of philosophy as it's done today. And yet I find that eclecticism incredibly attractive, just as I find it attractive in the city itself. This idea that we can take parts of lots of things and make them into something quite unique and and alluring. Mm, Right. Okay. So did the writing of this book change your relationship with Rome? Yeah, I I would say it does. It's a really interesting question. I, about the spots that I ended up writing in depth about, I feel like I've said the main things that I want to say about them, at least up to this point in my life. Mm -hmm. Obviously, there's much more to be said, but I feel as if I've kind of gotten something that I wanted out of them, which has made me really restless to move on to other spots. I I definitely don't want to be a tour guide just rehearsing the same speeches over and over in my (laughs) life, you know, Um, and it's made me want to keep exploring Rome. But it's also, curiously, um, having written about Rome makes me sort of see Rome and the lessons I was trying to get at almost everywhere, maybe especially here at home. Like I'm starting a job at Iowa State and I have to go by Ames's Hilton Coliseum, the big stadium that's called the Coliseum, and the Church of Thomas Aquinas almost every day, you know, in Ames. But more importantly, I see public spaces, ruins, monuments, mm. and I've been thinking a lot more about, you know, what are the histories hidden in these things? What are the layers of them? So to me, the, the book has sort of rippled out from Rome to make me think about both the history, but also the kind of philosophical questions embodied in, I suppose, almost all places. Rome just happens to, to raise those with particular oomph. <laughs> yeah. Would your next project be a book about Rome from another angle, or would you be inclined to take a philosophical tour of a different city or do something else? Well, the book that I just started to work on, I had a longstanding interest in food and cooking. I briefly talk about it even in the book on Rome, but I I want to, this is a kind of philosophical guidebook that I've written. I kind of want to write a philosophical cookbook next um, Mm. called The the Angels of Bread. Dante described philosophy as the bread of angels. And I, you know, I feel like maybe we're in the opposite position of those medieval folks for whom their bread was a ladder up to God. Maybe we need to descend from our virtual worlds and uh, inflated egos back down to uh, the bread on our table and uh, food. But so the, the idea was to explore cooking in a very philosophical way. 
Now, I will say that's not altogether a change of topic from dealing with, with Rome and Italy as, as I think Italian yeah. food culture is so fascinating and, and also is a big part of what the good life is all about. Um, it's not simply fuel for living the good life. Uh, a good meal and the rhythms of a good meal are, are often the very sum and substance of the good life. So anyway, that's what I'm hoping is next uh, for me. Right. Okay. And the last question, I think this is fair to ask you about since you mentioned it in your book. You describe kind of falling in love in Rome a couple of times. One was with the city and the other was with a person. So tell us if yeah. you can uh, how that worked out. Yeah, well, while I was there, I happened to meet uh, an art historian who was leading a, a study abroad as as well. And yeah, so it was really a, a magical experience as we got to know each other simultaneous to us exploring the city together. And so, you know, it, it really did happen, you know, at the same time, I was falling in love with, with, with the city and also falling in love with the person there's a great line of Goethe's where he says, a world you are, O Rome, but without love, the world isn't the world and even Rome isn't Rome. Mm-hmm. So I felt lucky that I got to experience uh, the meaning behind those lines. Right. And people who think, well, I don't need to go because I can uh, go to Epcot Center or something and see Italy there. <laughs> it's a good uh, <laughs> a good argument for actually going to the place itself and, and seeing what happens. Indeed. Uh, one other thing I did want to ask is if you were uh, recommending a kind of book list for people who are going and want to mm-hmm. take some history or philosophy or, or novels or something with them, is there are there any recommendations you make for what should go in the uh, what we should squeeze into our carry on bags? Well, here are a few of my favorites. I mean, I, there are any number of things depending on what people's interest is, but um you know, one book that I that many people already know about, but I will just emphasize if you don't, is The Blue Guide by Alta Macadam, The Blue Guide to Rome, just a, a, a true Bible of, of almost all the sites with, with really helpful historical information. So, you know, it's a bit of a chunk of a book, but it's pound for pound quite excellent. And of course, you can also download it on mm. your Kindle or whatever if, if, if need be, but it's just full of uh, really helpful, just basic uh, information and, and quite accurate and useful. But a few other things that are a little more thoughtful. I love Elizabeth Bowen's book, Mm. A Time in Rome, which is just gorgeously written and a wonderful book in part because like Rome, it just blends memoir and history and maybe a touch of her novelistic uh, flair. And it's just a great evocation of the city. And it's just a wonderful book to kind of ruminate over as you're sipping a cafe or or a, a Negroni. I also, I'm a big fan of Horace and I, the ancient Roman poet, his epistles or his odes, I think are wonderful. I really like David Ferry's translation of the epistles. There's a book by the great 20th century Italian Carlo Levi, Mm. great anti-fascist novelist, painter, but he has a set of essays that were collected posthumously that's translated as fleeting Rome, Roma fugativa. Um, that are just really humane and beautiful essays on the city of Rome. I think for philosophy, Seneca is just a really, to me, enjoyable and humane and and fascinating writer. Uh, His essays or his letters, uh, there's often quite nice selections that have been done of those. I think those are quite wonderful. Robert Hughes has a book called Rome, 
subtitles like a cultural, visual, and personal history or something like that. That's a quite spirited uh, engagement with the city as well. So, I mean, I, I could go on and on. There are lots of great books, but those are some of the ones that, that leap to mind. Okay, and on the top of the pile is Rome is a Guide to the Good Life, a Philosophical Grand Tour. Scott Samuelson, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Oh, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thanks for the thoughtful uh, questions, and, and you've given me some things to think about, so I appreciate that. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Emily Dickinson for slipping us that disc of snow. It's so clear in my mind how that works. Those drops, I'm not sure if I can convey it in words. Disc of snow will have to do. Just three words. Go with those. (laughs) As always, return to Emily Dickinson herself. And of course, my thanks... To Scott Samuelson for th- taking us to a world that is touched by morn and by noon and by twilight and by the stars at night, too. Rome reflects all facets of the universe, including all facets of the human soul. Indeed, I hope to get back there soon with Scott's book under my arm. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>